Welcome to the Rational Wish Podcast. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack, and I'm with the scrupulous Eddie Matthews. Welcome back. Well, hope you enjoyed that last episode. I truly did, but we're going to try to get back into something a little more academic, but we're going to try to keep it at the same type of pace as last time, where we just kind of shoot the shit about these things without really kind of putting people to sleep. I think my, my girlfriend has stopped listening to our podcast because she told me it feels like a lecture. So I'm really going to try to loosen up a little bit, and uh, we're going to talk about something academic in more of a conversational tone. Yeah, and just... um. I want to make it clear that my girlfriend has also stopped listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, she yeah she was definitely into it before that. <laughs> yes, she was a huge huge fan. So the girlfriend that I have, who is beautiful <laughs> and I love, has stopped listening to the podcast. So I would like to make to incentivize her to listen to it again by being less academic. <laughs> That's exactly the problem. That's uh, I'm glad glad we didn't have to beat around the bush there. Yes, I know listeners are wondering, I just want to make it clear. <laughs> They've all been following your relationship with bated breath, so I think that yes. we're on the same page. Eddie, so what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about the potentiality of a cold war between China and the U.S. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's almost not even the potential of a cold war. You could argue that the cold war portion has already begun. It's more the rea- reality or opportunity for a hot war that we're really concerned about, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what? how about by starting, why don't you give some definitions of a cold war and a hot war? Absolutely. I mean, the cold war with, you know, lowercase c and w generally refers to some sort of rivalry usually it's typically done in in terms of uh like hegemonic or multipolar powers which means kind of the dominant powers in any period of time any epoch um so the the most famous example is obviously the russia versus the u.s in the 20th century when the u.s and russia didn't directly have any physical military confrontations, but had a lot of proxy wars where they kind of supported different sides against each other. And all of the economic and military moves done by each country were in direct opposition to what was going on. Oh, I thought... So it's basically creating a strategy that creates the opportunities for war. Oh, I thought that... The Cold War just meant that when it was referring to the Russia-US, I thought they called that the Cold War just because it got 40 below in Russia. <laughs> That's it. Every war that Russia's ever fought has been a Cold Ooh, War. Ooh, this one's cold. So, <laughs> That's ex- I think that's an exact quote from uh, Napoleon. Yeah. So I'm glad we're really pulling out the stops. So, yeah. Um, why would... So given that definition... And, so, and then talk about a hot war. I mean, a hot war is just when there's actual military confrontation, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, thankfully, the Cold War, the capital C, capital W Cold War, never turned into a hot war, which was, you know, why we had to do nuclear drills as kids in the 50s and 60s, because with the firepower that exists then and today, which is even more disturbing, the 
actual state-on-state superpower v. superpower hot war would be catastrophic, not just for the countries involved, but for the entire world. Yeah, I think this is... I promise this will be a very quick tangent. Um, Do it, This is why... So given, you know, Cold War, it ended up being... um, So Reagan and Kennedy were both praised for de-escalating that situation, right? Because it, it, it... Arguably, they kept it from becoming a hot war. Uh, Kennedy, some people might argue with you. We can ask Matt, our resident right. historian, uh, because of the Bay of Pigs and those sorts of things. But yes, I mean, as a whole, I'll, we can talk about how close, I don't want to get too much into the Cold War, but how close we were to actually going into nuclear war with the Russians. It's incredibly close and terrifying. Right. Um, but the actual people involved genuinely did a good job not escalating things beyond the point of yeah so for the sake of argument let's just call those both um those actions de-escalating kind of forces right so this is why you know when it comes to um you know gun reform when it comes to the border demilitarization and de-escalating is where i fall on the side of because obviously there's exceptions there's certain situations yes but that's what i fall inside of because it engenders greater communication and again like makes it so that people uh, do not go into system one thinking right to bring it back to kahneman to go into erat like rash decision making because that escalates things and and you know that's how the the first world war started so Anyways, you're gone. I mean, absolutely. The, 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 the fear is that it's going to... It's not... I think people underestimate the potential for these sort of catastrophic events, not because they're wrong, but because they're viewing these events as something that has to come from a deliberate yeah. actor. I think people picture some kind of maniac who wants war as being the one leading this charge, when most of the time... It's this kind of vicious cycle of arms races and economic races and this uh, things like the trade war going on now where they kind of spiral into a point where neither side really has the political will to back down rather than the actual desire for war. And I think that's the the more terrifying and the more challenging uh, effect, because if it was just we had to eliminate the fact that anyone wants to have a world war, the chances would be very low. But unfortunately, that is not always the case. Do you want to talk about Thucydides' trap really quickly? Yeah. Um, so, Thuc- how do you say that? Thucydides? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Thucydides. Um, yeah, so we'll, we're going to reference a few different articles um, in this episode that we'll put in the description. Um, I think the Gu- I'm just going to quote The Guardian because it has a perfect like yeah. uh, description of it. So in The Guardian article, mm. they talk about how a Greek historian uh, who chronicled Sparta's fear of a rising Athens made war between the two inevitable. So that's what is called Thucydides. 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 He's like, a, he's like famous for being like one of the first historians okay. of all time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's kind of the... The, the fear here and, and so basically it's it's an anticipatory kind of uh force that drives war rather than actually being motivated yourself to do it it's it's more out of fear than out of domination is that fair to say 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the scariest, the one statistic that kind of wraps it up is uh, Harvard University's Graham Allison, which they quote in the Guardian article, has chronicled 16 times in history, uh, in, in modern, not modern history, but since uh, probably written history, um, where a rival power has kind of approached the economic and political power of the world hegemon, as the, the U.S. is right now, pretty unequivocally. And 12 of those 16 times, there was an all-out war, which is, you know, incredibly high and terrifying. So 75% of the time, there's been this massive world-altering war, which at this point in time would lead to, you know, billions of deaths. Yeah, I think we also need to be, um, you know, us in the 21st century, with all the technology and all the information and all of the things... We need to remember to stay humble in terms of looking at the trajectory of history and thinking we're immune from it. We need to be it's a bit, we need yeah. to be humble in terms of thinking that you know, in the modernist era uh they never anticipated um the first world war, right? Like they were the thinking at the time was so optimistic and so positive that they never um thought that there would be a war again because modernism had rationality had solved these problems. Why would we go to war? It's against everybody's um, motivation, you know? Absolutely. I think you bringing up World War One makes a, a lot of sense. And there's a reason people talk more about World War Two and the movies are made about World War Two is because it's a lot easier to fictionalize when there's a definitive bad guy and a definitive good guy and there's good versus evil when World War One is more like the situation facing the world in most wars uh, where there isn't necessarily a good reason to go to war and there isn't necessarily anyone who's on the right or wrong of history. Um, and those are arguably the more dangerous situations because it's a lot easier to to present yourself as the good force against the, you know, the evil enemy. Um, but when it's really just a confluence of political and economic factors that are leading to this rivalry, it becomes a lot more challenging to kind of oppose it with this rhetoric. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, U.S. and China specifically. Yeah, so we're going to try to get our friend Johnny Pickett arrested, is the goal of this entire episode, who lives in China. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's well-known fact that the China is approaching the United States in terms of economic, political, and military might on pretty much every range mm. of factors. And the U.S. has, especially under Trump, um, really, under Obama, though, they shifted, the U.S. shifted its focus from worrying about Russia and some of these other threats to American control to China. There was the, sh the deliberate shift to the east by the U.S. Uh, government, and Trump has kind of taken that to its, you know, bombastic uh, polar end, which you would kind of expect from him, and has kind of made it more, instead of a behind-the-scenes Cold War, kind of an out-in-front trade war, um, which essentially all you really need to know about it is that it's exactly what you would do if you thought that what power mattered was relative power and not absolute power. So that's to say that the U.S. in this circumstances would rather be medium rich instead of extremely rich if medium rich meant that China would remain slightly less rich when absolutely rich would mean China would be just as rich. So it's just relative superiority is what matters in a trade war. You're trying to ensure that China does not catch the U.S. using tactics that are, to be fair, kind of backhanded and against the rules. 
Um, so to slow that convergence of power, the U.S. has resorted to kind of ec- economic sanctions against China. Yeah, um, and just to like talk about right now, there's like anti-U.S. sentiment building in China because of these tariffs. Um, on Chinese goods, Chinese imports to America. So in the Time article, they list some of the measures that um, are being taken by the Chinese government. They're playing the national anthem on state radio and TV stations at 7 a.m. I think on all like on all stations as for 7 a.m. until the end of the year. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's a lot harder for them to have plausible deniability when they can basically arrest you for any reason for posting anything yeah. online. So they can't just kind of look the other way and be like, I don't know how that person, <laughs> I don't know why that's so popular yeah. online. There's essentially an anti-trade, anti-American trade war song that's gotten really yeah. popular. And it would be very difficult for the government to be like, hmm, well, we didn't start it when they control the entirety of totally. the Totally, and mobilizing, like they talk about mobilizing teenagers to emphasize nationalism at summer camps. Um, Uh so I don't know, like you talk about adverse effects and, um, I guess I don't yet personally have a really, a real opinion on Trump's like trade war, um, with China. And the reason I don't quite have an opinion is because, you know, from one angle, you're like, well, the human rights catastrophes that are happening in China are going um, unchecked and any other country doing it at a smaller scale would experience sanctions. So part of me is like, well, this there should be some um, ramifications for interning 800,000 Muslims, you know, in, in, in hard labor camps. So part of me has some sympathy, yeah, I, I mean, guess, with the Trump yeah. administration's um, tariffs. As far as, like, economically, that's a different discussion, but... I mean, it's pretty uncontroversial to say that economically it's it leads to worse economic right. outcomes. There's there's no way around it. That's what tariffs do. Um, <laughs> that's why it's a trade war. There's no way that, a, I guess, some obscure chance that it, it would lead to more economic activity. But it, it essentially you're sacrificing economic growth. Some estimates about $600 billion in the world yeah. economy in the next few years if sanctions It's continue. an interesting strategy, um, right? But, because the they wouldn't say that. The Trump administration would say, we're playing the long game. We are getting them to break and negotiate at a better deal for the U.S. And these tariffs are pushing them to break, right? That's what, that's the yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, in the end, it's, I mean, Trump hired uh, Bolton as his national security advisor, who is a known China hawk. That was what he was famous for before he was even hired. Um, so by hiring him alone was a signal of their intentions to treat China as a competitor rather than somebody that could be uh, used as an ally in kind of the propulsion of the world towards a better place. I think it, the problem that the Trump administration is not necessarily that they've resorted to these relativistic tactics. It's that they, like you said, they can't really take the high ground because of all the shit they've been pulling. Um, so it's tough for them to, like the, in the Cold War, well, it could be argued that this was never really the case. The U.S. always claimed to have the moral high ground because they were promoting democracy and kind of capitalism and freedom for the people 
in opposed to this communistic uh, kind of unindividualistic evil that they saw in the East. So it was presented as a moral battle for the soul right. of the world. In the case of the U.S. versus China, though it could easily be portrayed that way, because we've kind of uh, reneged on our promise to be the, the moral guardians of these other states at the moment, it is very difficult for the administration to present this as anything other than like a relativistic battle for global superiority. Yeah, part of the part of the problem too is that we've weakened our allies in Europe. And so um I think one of the articles is kind of making the case where well, they now do more trade with China than the US. And so with us pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords and with us pulling out of the Iran deal, um, and just weakening those alliances with Germany and with France and with um, the UK also in some respects, uh, it makes it so that there's not as... And like weakening NATO, I think, um, has definitely um, been the case in this current administration. It makes it more difficult for us to, you know, assume there's consensus in the West uh, in terms of loyalty to American rather than Chinese um, trade and values increasingly. Absolutely. I mean, we have the United States has a massive incumbency advantage. Most of the world speaks English in areas that are challenged for by the Chinese in, in Africa. Let's say China spends an ungodly amount of money there compared to the United States. But most places in Africa would still choose to align themselves with the United States if push came to shove right now. And that's because we have cultural advantages, we are able to broadcast things, soft power things on about Hollywood and the American lifestyle that people find attractive. And if we, in in my opinion, it, it all comes down to whether or not you think we're past the point of no return, where the U.S. still has enough power relatively to create a system that will kind of lock in these mechanisms for balance of power, or if you think it's too late, the United States kind of blew the opportunity they had as the sole hegemon to implement these systems by kind of being self, uh, self-fulfilling, self self-aggrandizing in these areas. Uh, and I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think there's China has, while they have done quite a few things that have warranted a tough response, they also have shown that they're willing to compromise in a lot of areas. They've joined in the Security Council. They've done a lot of other things where they've shown that they're really concerned. At least they haven't shown any other reason to, except for the economic growth of China. Yeah. They haven't really shown any kind of military might that hasn't directly been to improve the situation of the Chinese rather than just to take over for the sake of becoming a global hegemon. Yeah. So there's this, there's this line in the, um, another article we looked at from foreign policy. Dot com. We do a lot of background. Is it dot com? Dot org? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's okay. dot com. We'll put it in the, in the description. Um, and the quote is, and I thought this was a really good encapsulation of part of the problem with us trying to stay on top of, uh, the world's, you know, largest, having the largest mm. GDP. Um, so the quote is, Silicon Valley is simply never going to co- cooperate with the Pentagon nearly to the degree that China's burgeoning high-tech sector 
cooperates with its government. And so basically you have this conflation of the private and public sector um, consolidated under a cabinet, which is consolidated under a lifetime president who, if it's his goal for there to be the, the largest economy in the world, he can mobilize over, uh, you know, almost 2 billion people. I forget what the population yeah. of China is now, but mm. he can mobilize that workforce under one agenda and all of the high tech sectors and everything. So it's like, how do you compete? And then, and then they also have no qualms, you know, according to these sources about, um, you know, what they talk about in the foreign policy article, currency manipulation, um, uh, business buyouts, stealing intellectual property, um, you know, those kind of cases, like fraudulent things that the foreign policy article lists as well. So it's like, if you have all of that power and you have it um, all consolidated under one uh, goal and motivation, it's hard to see that as not an inevitable outcome. And I just don't know if a trade war is going to stem that degree of coordination, you know? I think the problem is also what is what would be the ideal outcome for anyone? I don't. I haven't heard anyone articulate a vision of the world that seems plausible uh, that both countries would accept as an outcome. I think. From I think situation. the vision of the world is to is to wind the clock back to to Eisenhower. You know, like like booming. American uh, manufacturing, uh, Europe and China are kind of not uh, even like viable, you know, economic powerhouses by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody's buying, you know, American exports and also like everybody has jobs. The Marshall Plan, we're investing in Europe. Like, I think that kind of nostalgic. American exceptionalist thinking is like we have a strong American Protestant work ethic in this country and we're Americans like we're gonna be on top uh you know economically because that's who we are I I just I don't think that I think that's the narrative I don't know what do you think about that yeah I mean I think that's an incredibly dangerous narrative right um the the idea of China just kind of taking a back seat and allowing the U.S. to continue to dominate economically is, at best, wishful thinking. Um, and if that is the only thing we're going to settle for, and we're going to be in for, this is, let's just say this isn't going to be the only trade war in our lifetime, but hopefully it won't result in an uh, actual war. I, I mean, I think the we can go into percentages, but the chances of a proxy war happening between the U.S. and China at some point in time are dangerously high. Maybe not a full-on war, but at least a couple proxy yeah. wars. Um, and that's terrifying, because if you look back, like you said before, at the amount of times the U.S. and Russia almost started World War III with nuclear weapons, it's terrifying. Well, and just for um, you know any listeners that aren't familiar with proxy war, that's just referring to basically what Syria is right now between the U.S. and Russia the U.S. supporting the um, Syrian kind of anti-government rebels 
who are fighting ISIS and the current like Syrian regime, Assad. Assad? Yeah. Yeah. And um, and Russia supporting Assad's regime. So like, we so U.S. and Russia basically supporting opposite sides of a small war in the Middle East that technically makes us enemies with Russia, but actually Americans aren't actually fighting Russians. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, the most famous examples would have been like the Korean War and Vietnam have both been discussed as proxy mm. wars. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess just the... Another difficult wrinkle with this is that the Trump administration seems to be actively trying to conflate economic threats with national security threats, um, which um, is problematic. One of the, one of these articles mentions how it actually had rhetoric saying like Canada is now a national security threat and then walked back from that response, yeah. Yeah. Um, which obviously is ludicrous, right? To, to, to label Canada as a national security threat. But what if they like melted a bunch of maple syrup and then kind of like dumped it over like a castle invasion? Like a maple syrup mudslide over New Hampshire? Yeah, exactly. Ew. Or they'd probably pick Vermont, sacrifice New Hampshire home state. Then, <laughs> true. Vermont? Better yeah. Watch out. Other than that, I think... Uh, I just... We probably I save. don't have a very high tolerance for kind of like weaponizing national security rhetoric in order to achieve the economic outcomes that you want. Well, it's, it's about it. It's a different way of seeing the world, right? When you see everything as power rather than these different separate spheres, economic, you know, capital can be turned into guns. That's essentially the way that they're viewing the world. So if Canada has an advantage in an economic area, that's a potential military threat because money can be turned into military force. That's essentially the worldview that's being presented. Um, and it's dangerous because the U.S. is so strong, they still are, regardless of what people say, that the view that the U.S. puts forth about the world can end up affecting how the world acts. Yeah. If people view capital as being a form of military power, then people will treat capital like military right. power. Yeah, that's a and that's a, that's a slippery slope. It's a very it's a very scary road to go down. Yeah, there's no lights, nothing on the side of the street. It's dark. There's like Russians trying to scam you for money on the side yeah, of the road. Geez. Like that would ever happen? <laughs> I think we've, we've just blamed it on Russia. I, I like that. I think it's uh, <laughs> they're probably probably. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Did you have any other thoughts on kind of uh, I guess this conflict or kind of what I guess we should be looking out for in terms of moving forward? Yeah, I mean, uh, I expect the the low-grade trade war to continue and hopefully not escalate, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I think when do you really need to start getting worried is when it branches beyond economics. So when China and Russia are bargaining over 
the South China Sea, that was a lot scarier. It seems like that conflict has kind of died down a bit. But when we're actually arguing over geopolitical territory or military power in terms of aircraft carriers and other of these symbolic military uh, effects, that is a sign that things are escalating. And yeah, it's terrifying because, like we said, there's if there was a an obvious solution, then I think it would be easier to guide us in that direction. But right now... Nobody knows which direction they even wanted to go, and that's uh, that's not good. Yeah, I was talking to uh, the father of one of my friends uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I think he's a conservative fella, and uh, and we were just talking talking about things and talking about Trump and, um, and such, and so. I was kind of like, well, I guess it's problematic to me that we have a president that makes a national security decision via tweet and doesn't inform his own secretary of defense of that decision. And he kind of was like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't see why that's a huge problem if that's what the policy decision he wants to do. And I think that this is my point of why that's a huge problem is that it starts to erode the credibility of the cabinet, of your cabinet. And then once that credibility is eroded, it's hard to regain that. Like it takes years and years to kind of regain that if that's been eroded. So that's absolutely the problem. I think it's an advantage of democracy and that a change in government can lead to the kind of a boost in legitimacy. But you can never regain the decades worth of personal connections and things like the dismantling of the State Department. These personal connections that diplomats have with other countries and the ability to solve problems behind the scenes without escalating things over Twitter or the news cycle is an advantage for any country and something that you can't just rebuild in two cycles of government. Um it's a lot easier to lose than it is to gain, and that's a huge problem. Yeah, it's just interesting that John Bolton, who you remember, who you mentioned, you know, with Trump being such a vocal uh, critic of the Iraq War, and John Bolton, from my understanding, be a major contributor to the invasion of Iraq. Why he would be hired into his administration, and basically, you know, um possibly following a lot of the same patterns that led us to that conflict. I mean, it's a puzzle. If anyone from from the Trump administration wants to reach out to us, we'll uh we'll make sure we respond to any voicemails. We're not going to answer the phone if it's from Washington DC. <laughs> but uh, if you leave us a voicemail, we will call you back. And uh yeah. we'll make sure we're on top yeah, of it. Yeah, send us paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need official communications. So we'll wait for that call, and I guess we'll, we'll solve all the world's problems when they, when they come to us. There we go. Well, uh... Uh, do you want to reach out and say anything to our audience? I feel like... Uh, so this was actually a recommendation that this episode was from my brother Carson, who recommended this along with a couple other kind of uh, national security-related issues. But uh, if anyone has any particular topics they'd like us to talk about, Feel free to, to text us or to go on our Twitter, right? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, at Rationalish Pod. Um, hit us up there. 
Also... Or just talk about it. Just kind of get the vibe going. We'll probably hear about it, you know? We're pretty connected. Yeah. So, uh... <laughs> feel free to... <laughs> just mention it to your friends. Feel free to give us, uh... <laughs> give us the old five-star review. Oh, man. I don't know if we just... I'll take four stars. If you review us... I'll, I'll take four to five. Yeah, leave any feedback that you want. Yeah. Um... Mm. Although, one-star ratings and reviews are kind of entertaining, too. True. As long as you leave a scathing Yeah, one star or four or five. I want it to be a personal attack, though. I don't want it to have anything to do with our presentation. I want it to be about my voice or (laughs) some sort of personality characteristic that you really don't like. That'd be great. I'm sure there are abundant examples. (laughs) People people have been waiting to... uh, to put theirs up there. So I'm giving you the go. There we go. Cool. Thanks, Morgan. Until next time. Later.